0: This is an AMI podcast.
1: Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England.
0: Until now, Curtis LeBlanc has been best known for his poetry, but with the publication of his debut novel, Sunsetter, he's finding a far wider audience. Set over the period of a single weekend when the carnival comes to a post-industrial Canadian prairie town, the book is a mesmerising blend of crime thriller and literary fiction. Across its pages, Curtis unflinchingly peels back the layers, to reveal a community in the clutches of small-town police corruption, designer drugs, and teenage disillusionment. And yet, for all this, it's a novel where hope refuses to lay down and die. Before Curtis joins us from his home in Vancouver, here's a clip of Sophie Amos narrating Sunsetter.
2: This month of May, the hottest in memory, the oil gone and the work gone with it, Gone, too. The color of the paint on the abandoned workyard buildings and refineries, and the green of the earth around the open gravel pit on the south side. The rusted trucks and their trailers. Carlsbad Company in peeling red block letters. Parked again on the outskirts of Perrin. This weekend, a pulse reverberating from the Sunsetter rodeo grounds outward. "'and Dallin and Brooks now at the center. "'On the midway, Brooks tells Dallin "'that it's the black and yellow tent, "'the one with the banner that reads, "'Cover the spot. "'Brooks's younger brother, Aaron, filled him in. "'He frequents the smoke pit at school between periods, "'huffs white clouds among friends with similar interests. "'Earlier today, he told Brooks some out-of-towner came by, "'probably about seventeen or eighteen and gave them a lead on where to get good, clean shit for cheap at the Sunsetter. Dallin has always supposed Aaron got his penchant for hard partying from his older brother. But the truth is that it's a common pastime in any town with nothing to do, and nowhere else to go for miles and miles in all directions. Dallin approaches the black and yellow tent with Brooks. He's sure it's the one. How many spot-covering games could there be? There's some commotion there now. Two guys getting into it, and that doesn't bode well for their plan. There are always cops patrolling the midway, and it isn't hard to pick out the jagged movements and breathy grunts of a fight about to break out. Think something's getting busted up? Dellan asks. Don't know. Doesn't look good, though.
0: Curtis LeBlanc, welcome to My Life in Books.
3: Thank you so much for having
0: me. The word gone tolls through that clip that we've just heard like a death knell. Peron is a town in terminal decline. The oil boom has passed, and there's not much there for the residents. Can you lead us a little bit further into this prairie town?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I myself I've been in Vancouver, British Columbia now on the west coast of Canada for thirteen years. It'll be thirteen years at the end of the month I moved here for university and you know, just stuck around as one often does. But I grew up, spent all my formative years in Alberta, in a prairie town, maybe a little bit bigger than Peron, but not totally unlike Perron. And um it's just north of Edmonton and much of the sort of infrastructure of that part of the province and many of the towns in that part of the province rely on the oil industry in a big way for their livelihoods. And I kind of wanted to imagine the area where I grew up in this sort of post oil world. I wanted to imagine what it might be like for the residents and for the places that I knew and loved to be in a decline like the one we might see when the world stops relying on the fossil fuels that they produce. And so Peron very much came out of a thought experiment that I was doing where I wanted, yeah, I wanted to imagine sort of this, this post oil Alberta and what it might look like for the people living there.
0: Yeah. And it very much feels like a wild west town that has no heritage anymore. There's a passage in the early chapters of the book where one of your young protagonists, Dallin, is recalling a conversation he had with his father. His father used to revel in taking part in the rodeo and the rodeo used to end in a slaughter of the Indians, but now that has been cancelled and its newer heritage, its oil boom heritage, has died there's there's nothing to reach back for, and there's nothing to reach forward for either
3: yeah no um it's funny again, it comes back to sort of the town or the city where I grew up, St Albert Alberta, which is now I think population in the realm of you know sixty to seventy thousand. but when my father grew up there, it was much, much less. It's sort of become this mostly residential area that you know a feeder town for Edmonton. Um, where people live, but they don't work. And so it's funny, you get things like the downtown St. Albert, that's you know essentially one sort of sleepy street. And then you have what you might see of a quickly developing uh, city in Canada, where you have many strip malls and big box stores on the outskirts. But back in the day, it was very, very small and very, very sleepy. And so much like uh, you described, it's a place that developed very quickly. Uh, there's a street in town that we often drive down. My dad's father, my prepare, he built houses in St. Albert. And we can go down a street in one of the older neighborhoods. My dad can point at, you know, five or six of the houses on that street and say, My dad built those and we lived in them. They would finish a house and then move in and sell the last one and sort of go on that way down the street. <laughs> uh, and so it's funny to me to be able to go through what seems like an ancient part of the city, though it really only. Mm-hmm. Uh, developed, you know, 50, 60 years ago, and have it be sort of impossible to imagine what the city looked like back then, only sort of one generation before mine.
0: I suppose if anything has survived in Peron, it's a heritage of hard living, and it's certainly noticeable in the descriptions of the way people go at their enjoyment, that they are drinking hard, they're partying hard, they're fighting. But that's all that's left. And in some ways, that has been turned inwards rather than outwards into some kind of work, excavating oil or excavating gravel.
3: Yeah. So I am always amazed when I go back to Alberta, just how different the attitude is. And I think a lot of it comes down to the environment and the climate in the Edmonton area, especially we have a solid eight months of winter where it is dark and, uh, sometimes extremely cold gets into the third minus 30 and 40 degrees Celsius. And, uh, there's not a lot to do. And so I think you either turn to something productive or something not productive in those months to get by. So, you know, for me, it was art. I did a lot of art. I wrote a lot of music, and then I started writing at a younger age, uh, but then there's also these self-destructive habits that you get into, where you know we're drinking beers and each other's basements, and uh, just the things that you do to ward off the season, really. And then on the flip side, when the summer comes around, uh, it's so short and so intense that you want to squeeze every second out of it. Edmonton is sometimes known as the festival city, which is funny because eight months of the year there really aren't no festivals going on. It's too cold nobody's going outside during the summer there's something happening every week in the city where people really do try and squeeze the life out of the summer like they're doing in the book in parent
0: absolutely that that craving for escapism is palpable in the book and and the pulse of life that we can hear in that clip that is coming from the sunset rodeo stadium the noise of the carnival that has come there it, it's drawing both the protagonists of the book and also the reader towards it, like moths to a flame. And there's a sense that there's something rather destructive at the heart of it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think that destructiveness is, as I was saying, that tendency to self-destruct in those moments where you're trying to make the most out of a period of time that you have, you know, a, a liminal space, if you will. I kind of came of age, you know, in the early 2000s when the drinking culture was very much, you know, imagine this was your last night. The, the sort of clubbing attitude and most of popular music was, let's party like the world is ending. But of course, the world at the time wasn't ending and it wasn't our last nights, uh, but you sort of approached every night like it was that. And so the rodeo, I think, is almost a super compressed version of of that attitude for the people in Perrin. This is, you know, the big weekend for them. Uh, everyone knows what's going on. It's the weekend when everyone is going to be in the same place at once. So let's just go wild.
0: Yeah. Cast your worries aside and believe that you're in the middle of a boom town all over again. And that certainly seems to be the ethos in the Carnies who are running Sunsetter. Dell, the man in charge of the carnival, certainly tells his employees to play on people's insecurities, to work on the young guys who want to impress their girlfriends or, or show that they're rich, to encourage them to spend as much money as possible.
3: Yeah, so I actually, I wrote an article about this not too long where I, um, I was talking about, it's called Midway as Menace, and it's about um, the setting of a carnival being a a sort of antagonist in this book, but also uh, in popular culture as well. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that the carnival sort of takes shape in what is uh, usually an innocuous space, familiar but unremarkable to the people living there. And all of a sudden it's transformed into this sort of playland, and then you go and you let go of all your inhibitions. And you feel in that space that is somehow magical, somehow foreign but familiar all at once that you can do anything and it's okay because it's not going to be there in a few days no one's going to remember and so very much i feel like carnivals act in that sort of mindset where you can go and you can spend the extra 40 dollars on the game you're not going to win you can drink the three or four beers more than you normally would and it doesn't matter because it's the carnival and that's what you're supposed to do
0: And that's certainly how your two teenage protagonists, Dallin and Brooks, approach the the cover-the-spot tent. They aren't there just to play the game of cover-the-spot. They are also hoping to score some pills so that they can get an even bigger buzz. Both are craving an escape that will lift them out of the daily boredom of their lives, that'll make them feel that they're going somewhere. Brooks, because he's of Jamaican heritage and doesn't really feel he fits in, and Dallin more because he is socially awkward and wants something to dull down that awkwardness that he has around himself.
3: Yeah, they're both also in that time in their lives where I feel like you're craving something more that doesn't always come. They're both 19. They're sort of in their first year outside of high school, um, finding their way. They feel like they should be adults. All their lives, they've been told that this is the point in their lives where everything is going to become different. And I think for so many of us, uh, we get into that period, and it's not only a letdown, but it's, it's overwhelming in how good doesn't feel, if you will. <laughs> I can't find a better way of saying that, but um, you know, you enter early adulthood and you're like, man, this is it. This is like what I've been waiting for my whole life. This is the freedom that I've created Well, I'm working this nine to five where I'm working in the mall or I'm going to school and it's just kind of like the school I was at before. Nothing's different and you're craving that, that higher level. And so I think it is an age and when a lot of people do start experimenting with drugs and party drugs and partying harder and and looking to attain uh, that thing that they've been promised that isn't necessarily real.
0: I was also struck by how even before Dallin takes any drugs, his perceptions of the world around him are, are so visceral, so turned up to 11, that it's almost as if he is on drugs anyway. He, it, it, it's that kind of oddness of being a teenager where you feel everything more keenly than at any other time in your life, because it is still new.
3: Absolutely. I, I remember myself being an extremely introspective, but also observant teenager, kind of like gal And I used to go to parties, and I was the quiet one, you know, when everyone's drinking in the park, in the field, I'm on the swing set looking at everything that's going on and feeling that it was somehow profound, though I didn't know how to put it into words. And I think that's uh, an experience of mine that I really tried to infuse into Dallin's character. He is very observant. He spends a lot of time in his own head dwelling on the things that are going on around him and trying to pull meaning from them.
0: And also that sense of self-scrutiny that Dallin has is beautifully brought to life in, in the first chapter where it's like one long camera shot from beginning to end as we follow Dallin and Brooks through the night of the carnival. And it really has that sense of film noir, that that long shot following the protagonists through and something terrible happening. And actually the whole the book, in many ways, feels like a, a small-town film noir. There are corrupt cops, an underground criminal trade going on, and a femme fatale in Hannah, albeit a rather unwitting femme fatale. She's your third protagonist. She, too, is nineteen, twenty years old and feels let down by the town that she lives in, in need of something more
3: yeah absolutely. When I was writing the book, I really did feel in my head like I was drawing very strongly off film and television and I you know I watched a lot of TV. I think we're in the golden age of television. It's great. so many good shows out. Uh, I watched a lot of film as well. And when I was writing this, I was just letting it play like a movie in my head and sort of writing beat by beat what was happening. And in that way, you know that was sort of the easiest part of the writing process just getting sort of the the scaffolding of the book before I filled it all in. And Hannah, I pulled on some of the uh, genre expectations that you talked about, Um, things you might expect to see in sort of a small-town noir. Yeah, and so Hannah is absolutely looking for many of the same things that the other characters are looking for in the book, a sense of purpose in a small town, in a place where she doesn't feel like she totally belongs. Earlier on in the book, she thinks that's Nick a young man who works for the carnival that, that sort of services the Sunset rodeo, And later on, I think she really feels like she doesn't have one at all. And this is the thing that fuels her anger the most. She feels like her the, the purpose that she's been looking for all her life has been taken away from her. And so she's filled with this deep grief that sort of unfolds into what is maybe an an anger that is uncharacteristic of her. Uh, And that was the most interesting part of writing that character for me, was looking to see where that grief took her.
0: Yeah, I mean, she's a very patient character. And unlike the two boys, she has learned to manage her anxiety in a more creative way. She paints by numbers She's recreating beautiful Monet artworks with all their blurred colours in a very precise way to, to bring her turbulent emotions under control. But what she's really looking for, as you say, is a relationship, but without a sense of reliance, either of her being relied upon or having to rely on someone else. And I suppose in many ways, she is actually the most independent character we come across in the book.
3: Yeah, Hannah, I feel, has many of the tools and traits that we demand of young women in the world. She's 19 or 20, and she's, you know, because of her gender, she's had to mature a lot quicker than, say, Brooks and Dallin have. So she does have these coping mechanisms. She has these ways of protecting herself and the world, whether it be her patience or the things that she does to sort of elongate that patience or, or practice that patience in a more focused way.
0: And she uses this patient approach to get the full picture of why her friend has died at the carnival and to unpick the criminal trade that is going on within their small town. Dallin understands his sense of duty and goes to the police after the death of Brooks and Hannah's friend, but his truth is an inconvenient truth, which is ignored, rejected by the police. And this so offends Dallin's sense of duty that he and Hannah agree that they must go on and uncover the truth, whatever happens, and without the help of the authorities who should be there to help them.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think where Dallin has a sense of injustice and a more uh, basic moral compass than Hannah is equipped with, Hannah has this combination of indignation and burning curiosity Mm. even earlier on in the story when she's waiting for nick to get into town she's already wondering whether or not it's the thing that she's been looking for and she's i think she has a quiet worry that it's not going to end up being what she wants it to be that thing that sort of gives her purpose in town that easy reliance that easy arrangement um, where she can finally sort of feel at peace and so that curiosity also carries forward through the novel when she decides that she needs to get to the bottom of what it is that has sort of happened to her and Dallin and Brooks and Nick at the Sunset Air Rodeo. And I feel that curiosity is so burning for Hannah that it becomes impossible for her to ignore it. It's almost as if there's no other trajectory that her story could have taken. She's going to follow this thing to the end.
0: And she's correct, too, in many ways. And I think that's certainly how you would like us to feel as readers, that if people don't take responsibility for the consequences of their actions, if people don't try and chase down the answers, those consequences stretch further and further. There's a sense of glass cracking as soon as the first death happens. It, it spreads out further and further and involves more and more people and wrecks their lives
3: I agree with you I think she is right to attempt to stop the spread of this glass cracking and so when she sees that maybe these these cracks won't stop spreading that these this series of events is going to continue on maybe even out of sight for her she, she could probably ignore everything and have what might be perceived as a normal life, but that's it's not it's not good enough for her. And I think all of these characters are, are filled with a moral ambiguity. There's sort of a, a discovery process of what's right and what's wrong. That's true for a lot of young people, and they're all participating in that discovery process in the novel. And Hannah, I think, is investigating it the most sincerely and the most intensely of all the characters.
0: You also show us that whilst the police decision not to investigate Dallin's report is utterly indefensible, there is a reason why they are, as you put it, they're more interested in completing computer games than they are in investigating crimes. And that's because they feel that They've been betrayed. They feel that the social contract the state has made with them to pay them properly for the dangerous job that they're doing has been broken and that they can't afford to put their elderly relatives into care homes and they can't afford the trappings of Western life. So they feel, albeit, as I say, indefensibly justified in being corrupt.
3: Yeah, I think uh sort of the the police story in this novel and more specifically Arneson's story is a investigation of late stage capitalism. As we've already discussed, Perrin as a town is as an industry town that is that has been all used up, if you will. The the world and the market no longer has a use for it. And so Arneson Is an individual who used to work in that industry, uh, probably made a lot of money doing it as well and probably thought it was never going to end too. But now his mother is reaching a point in her life where she needs a higher level of care than he's able to offer. And she kind of feels like he can't control the world in the way that he used to be able to in a financial sense. And so him and all his counterparts are looking to make ends meet in a way that is suitable to them. And maybe in a way that I think this is important too, in telling that side of the story is I, I don't think a lot of those characters would have expected, you know, 10 years earlier to be doing the things that they're mm-hmm. doing. But sort of the world has put them into such a hard place that it's the path that they end up choosing. And it's not the only path that they could have chosen. But it's the path that they go down anyways. It's the one that they felt was right at the time. And so it's this financial desperation that is important to the police side of things that is very much rooted in the setting as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to see Deputy Arneson wrestling with his conscience throughout the book, but he is too mired in corruption to be able to escape. He's gone too far down the path, that the crack has gone too far for him to be able to escape it. And actually, the only control he has, as as the Sheriff Durham says to him, is fear. And as cops, they've got it at the hip. To take your comparison with the crimes of late stage capitalism, the only control that the conglomerates, that control our Western world have, is to say that it's us, or complete and utter anarchy.
3: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, policing as it exists in our world was created to defend private property. And so they had such a fear-driven function in the economic agreement that exists. And I think that Artisan and Durham especially are going to use that to their full advantage. Not only are they going to be the individuals who are supposed to be the alternative to chaos, but they're also going to use that fear to better their position financially as well, to better their positions in the world. And I think anything done through fear in that way almost always comes to nefarious results.
0: And the way that you crystallize this, the representative of capitalism with no conscience whatsoever, is the illegal drugs factory on the outskirts of Peron that is controlled by middle class millennials in designer clothes who treat it just as any kind of pharmaceuticals business with no regard to the well being of their customers who they just see as collateral damage. And I got the feeling you were having a a bit of a poke at the opioid crisis and the Sackler company who have little regard for the harm that their drugs might cause.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think the opioid crisis is one of those things. It's a tragedy that's exasperated by capitalism as well. You have companies like the Sackler company who introduce these drugs into the world. And then they take on a life of their own, both for the people that uh, end up addicted to them and the people who seek to exploit them for their own financial gain. And it's twofold, you know, in one sense, people are desperate for a way to make money in order to live the lives that they want to live. And the avenues in which we're able to do so become narrow and narrower uh, as the years go on, as life gets more expensive, as the rate of pay doesn't keep up etc so people look for and you know some individuals go down you know darker paths in order to achieve the lives they want to achieve financially and on the flip side people's lives are being destroyed by their inability to live in more and more expensive world with a less and less regard for them as human beings and so individuals you know are forced in a way to turn to different means of escape And so the opioid crisis is being exasperated by the economic realities of our country and beyond.
0: The word that I found myself writing again and again in my notes as I was reading and thoroughly enjoying Sunsetter was misappropriation, misappropriation of trust, misappropriation of pharmaceuticals, misappropriation of sense of self. But most of all, I think it's misappropriation of land. And landscape is absolutely central to not just Sunsetter, but to your work in general. And it's something I think we should explore further after the
1: break. Share your views on the books you love with Red email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111.
0: Welcome back to My Life in Books, where this week I'm in conversation with author and poet Curtis LeBlanc. Curtis, just before the break we were talking about the importance of landscape in your work, particularly man's exploitation of natural resources around him, which in Sunsetter is expressed in the incongruity of gravel pits and lush golf courses cut into the prairie, it's clearly something that you feel very deeply.
3: Absolutely. I'm glad you touched on this because landscape has always been incredibly important to me in my writing, and it's something that I wanted to really focus on in this book. But it's true, our colonial relationship with the land in Canada has always been one of exploitation without regard to the history of the land where the fact that it's been stolen, whether that's straight up stolen and we're living on unceded territories as we are here in Vancouver or you know, stolen and by other savvy legal and political means. And um, it's been stolen for a profit as well. Uh, I think that is incredibly evident in Perrin. It's it's an area of the world that has been used up mm. both the people And the land have been used up in order to make a buck and then left behind uh, when there's no buck to be made. And so you can see the scars of that exchange all over Karen and the surrounding landscape in those gravel pits, in those abandoned warehouses, in those rundown golf courses that probably used to serve uh, the wealthy and now are places to escape for the people who have nothing to do.
0: I believe that you were born and raised on Treaty 6 territory, which maybe some of the international audience wouldn't necessarily understand exactly what that meant. Could you just take us into that a little bit, please?
3: Absolutely. So that refers to the area where St. Albert, Alberta is located in sort of northern Alberta, and it's an area that was acquired by Canada through Treaty as I sort of referred to before um, through savvy legal and political means earlier in our sort of confederation, if you will. But there are also areas of Canada that were never acquired via treaty. There are many areas, you know, a huge amount of land that was never acquired via treaty that is being lived on by Canadians as a colonial state uh, that were never signed away or never legally acquired. And these lands are more or less treated the same in that economic exchange and being sort of exploited and used up uh, for profit. Uh, we see it with you know the forestry industry, the mining industry, the oil industry. It's it's a land of great beauty and a land of tremendous natural resource. And unfortunately, as our history has shown, we have gone after these resources in a way that is ultimately destructive and with I think not the best intentions in that profit and personal gain for few, was the goal at the expense of the land itself, the people it belongs to, and of course, the world in terms of the climate crisis that we're currently experiencing.
0: Yes, I suppose that that sense of being the uninvited guest who not only raids the larder, but then builds a strip mall to sell the products from.
3: Yeah, it's deeply sad, and the more and more I go home and see how St. Albert is expanding into the beautiful lands on the outskirts of it with these cookie-cutters, these horrible subdivisions. You wouldn't believe subdivisions of houses that all look exactly the same, hastily built uh, for people who are moving in to work in the oil industry or in the various industries that operate out of Edmonton and you know it's funny growing up we always said you know even if you're not working directly for the oil industry in the Edmonton area likely you're working for the oil industry in some more roundabout way because in these places where the economy relies on resource extraction all of the infrastructure and all the services that develop in tandem to support that industry and so uh, Perrin is very much one of those places where we see the services and the infrastructure that was developed uh, to support the industry become abandoned and unused because the industry is no longer there that's how you get more or less a ghost town like Perrin is.
0: Yeah I mean the the words that resonate through are not just gone but rust and corroded and twisted just words that imply the death of an industry that's just been left there as carcasses. There's been no attempt to tidy up and make good the land after it's been exploited.
3: Absolutely. And you know, I think one of the big problems with resource extraction is that for a long time it was operating without any legal obligation to sort of do the cleanup afterwards. Oftentimes these industries operate without an end in sight. It's really unfortunate and small-minded, if you will. But yeah, ultimately what you get is the heaps of rusting metal and the scars in the earth and those giant areas of environmental collapse that exist all over northern Alberta.
0: It's something that you explore in your two collections of poetry, Little Wild from 2018 and Burning in the Glass Age of Isolation, which I think is 2019. And you not only have this keen sense of how we have corrupted and stripped the earth but you have a wonderful sense of geography and geology as well you see natural beauty even in between the breeze blocks that these industries have left behind
3: yeah i've always been captivated by natural beauty and especially the beauty that is the canadian prairies so funny when I moved out here to Vancouver, which is by all accounts one of the most beautiful places on earth where we're sort of on this inlet on the Pacific Ocean in a coastal rainforest. The vegetation is extremely lush and we're we're walled in by these incredible mountains on all sides. And I felt I couldn't feel anything but a little bit claustrophobic when I moved here. Mm. Sort of surrounded by, you know, mountains on one side. And the ocean on the other which were both very sort of strange and unfamiliar to me having lived 18 years in the prairies where you know if you couldn't see the horizon um you probably weren't on the prairies anymore Mm. and so whenever i go back i'm always just struck by the beauty of the landscape and how when it's so flat and it's so uniform that the smallest things become extraordinary the smallest deviations and landscape become extraordinary. You get a river valley that has just become so strikingly beautiful in contrast to the rest of the uh, uniformity that you know, it takes your breath away. And so it's something that I've always tried to write about. Uh, it's, I always felt compelled to write about. And at the same time, I've always seen the, the juxtaposition between natural beauty and the things that we do as human beings to the landscape and on the landscape and how those things, while interesting and sometimes beautiful as well, can also be just such a blight on what is otherwise just beautiful nature. So absolutely I've explored that in my poetry and I think I've continued to explore that in the novel.
0: Very much so. And that zoomed-in focus of poetry and, and economy of expression is a great training ground for writing concise prose, for capturing action in a few words. For you, was it always going to be poetry first, before you could move on to longer form fiction?
3: Yeah, I I mean, I've always been drawn towards concision. Is that a word, concision?
0: It can be today, yeah. I think it should be.
3: I've always been drawn towards writing in a concise way. I actually started as a songwriter in my teens. You know, I was locking myself in my basement bedroom with my guitar writing sort of folk punk anthems. And I did that for years and years and I continued to write songs and perform right into my master's degree out here in Vancouver. And so in a way poetry was the natural progression from writing lyrics in that, you know, they look the same and oftentimes sound the same or two very different uh forms so in a way i think poetry felt like the more natural step for me i was always interested in writing fiction but i had more to learn i think Mm. more to familiarize myself with and so i wrote a lot of short fiction through my post-secondary education kind of feeling my way through through prose and the way that a story moves and uh you know, I'm happy to say Sunsetter is just the first of what I hope are many works where I'm finally putting those lessons into the published form.
0: Well, that's great. I, I'm thoroughly looking forward to the next novel that you write. And I understand that your wife is a writer as well. You met her on your master's.
3: Uh, she is. Yeah, our careers have sort of moved along in lockstep in a way, in that we both released our first poetry books in 2018, the year that we got married. And I can confidently say that hers is incredible and better than mine. <laughs> Not just saying that either. She's she's an amazing talent uh, who's just devoted her entire life to writing. It's been her passion. It seems like day one. And her first novel, The Birthyard, came out in 2020, the same year my second poetry collection came out. And that came out with HarperCollins' Canada. And it's a fantastic work as well about sort of a cult that seeks to control the reproductive cycles of the women living within it. Um, It often draws handmade stale comparisons, but it is completely different work and it's incredible.
0: I think having whetted everybody's appetites, we better let them know her name as well, hadn't we?
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So her name is Mallory Tater. And uh, yeah, that novel is The Perf Yard.
0: Fantastic. Well, maybe a future guest for the show, assuming it's available in audio.
3: I believe it is. It is actually. I can tell you uh, with certainty that it and is. I'm sure she'd love to come talk to you, Rhett.
0: Fantastic. Well, there you go. We'd better get back to you, Curtis. So what are you working on at the moment? You said there's another novel on the way?
3: There is. I'm working on a novel right now that I I can't tell you too much about, because obviously it isn't done, but I'm in the drafting stage and it deals with climate crisis and guilt, sense of, you know, very deep personal guilt. And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm having a ton of fun writing it. I am very excited about it as well. So hopefully that's not too far in the future uh, when, you know, people will be able to check it out.
0: Again, I never give spoilers on this show but there is the possibility that we could follow up with at least one of the characters in Sunsetter. And I wondered if you felt there was a sense of unfinished business for them that you might return to in the future?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think I I tried very hard to toe the line writing the sort of end of Sunsetter, toe the line between writing you know a novel that feels complete or as complete as the literary novel can feel mm. and to also leave open the possibility of revisiting these characters in that setting and that sort of narrative thread uh, because I enjoy writing it so much and I would absolutely write a sequel unfortunately for us writers sometimes that depends on the market mm. and uh, how well the first one does and whether or not there's enough of an appetite for a second one but hopefully we get to that point where I can start thinking about continuing along these characters
0: it's funny i can often detect uh, a fondness for certain characters from the author and uh, i felt you felt that there was a a bittersweet parting
3: absolutely i think uh, whenever you finish a longer work it, it is very much that bittersweet parting it's so funny you just get so wrapped up in the world and in the minds of these individuals and they become real to you you know They become your friends. And so I would love to uh, hang out with them again soon.
0: Now, one thing that a visually impaired audience will not necessarily appreciate is the cover of Sunsetter, which as soon as my daughter saw it, went, oh, that's a great cover. You wouldn't be able to walk past that in a bookshop. You just have to pick it up. Could you describe it
3: for us? Oh, I love that comment, too. And that's that's absolutely what you want. Yeah, so the cover is, uh, it's all the color gradient of a sunset. And so it's sort of at the bottom is, is dark black, and then it goes to fiery red and then an incandescent orange, right up to sort of the soft blue of the last light of day that you might see in sort of the spring or summer, especially on the prairies. And uh, right in the middle of it is this skull. Looking up, and it's sort of surrounded by this almost like digital wispiness of a, of a bright yellow. It almost looks like it's dissipating into the air. And yeah, ECW, my publisher, came to me with I think seven or eight options, and it's the first time in my publishing career where I've felt like a kid in a candy shop in a way, where they were all so great, I didn't know which one to pick. But this one really, it did stand out as so visually striking. And I think, as your daughter said, it's it's one of those books that. It definitely catches your eye on the shelf.
0: Did ECW also recommend Sophie Amos as a narrator? Because she's got great youth to her voice, which is absolutely fitting for the protagonist. But she's also got that jaded, washed out tone to her voice that you kind of think she's been baked hard on the prairies herself.
3: Yeah, so um, actually it was Penguin Random House Audio that did the audiobook and they got in touch with me and they offered up sort of three possibilities for our narrator and uh sophia was the clear winner straight away i thought you know to me it just i was like this sounds like hannah to me this is perfect
0: you are also a publisher yourself you are the co-founder of rahila's ghost press what do you look for in somebody else's writing
3: Yeah, so Rahila's Ghost Press is a project that me and my wife have actually just recently put on hiatus, but we've been doing it for the last five years. When we came out of our master's degrees, we wanted to find a way to still sort of be close to the community and give back as well. And so we decided we'd start a a chapbook publisher. So we published poetry for five years and published nearly 30 books. And for us, we just wanted to find new and exciting voices. We wanted to be surprised chapbooks in the poetry world for anyone who doesn't know it's a it's a shorter poetry book much like an ep uh functions next to an lp and music In that it's you know maybe 12 poems maybe it's longer 30 40 pages and it's a way to get your work into the world and sort of book form as a sort of sampler of things to come and so in that way we're very much looking for Voices that we were excited by, voices that we felt need to be heard. And uh, I think it's a goal that we accomplished over Mm -hmm. the years that we were doing that.
0: And reading other people's work is actually the only way that any writer develops their own craft as well. So a a rather symbiotic relationship, I should imagine, between you and the people you were publishing.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it kept us uh, in tune with what was going on in the poetry world. Poetry is so alive and always transforming in the various communities in which it's you know being written and which operates. And for us, yeah, it was a great way to sort of keep our finger on the pulse of what awesome young Canadian poets were doing.
0: Poetry certainly is very much alive and well in Canada, isn't it?
3: Oh, absolutely. I think it's only growing in popularity, especially with um, the way our lives are and the way our collective attention spans operate. Uh, Poetry can be such a great way to scratch that literary itch without feeling you need to read 40 pages to really immerse yourself in a novel. So, uh, yeah, poetry seems to be doing as well as it's uh, ever done.
0: Well, I'm very interested to hear whether any of the three books of your life are works of poetry. So without further ado, Curtis LeBlanc, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the book I picked uh, for the younger portion of my life is The Collected Stories of Amy Hempel. Are you familiar, Red?
0: I'm not, so please enlighten me.
3: Okay, great. This is great. So Amy Hempel is an American short story writer who is always sort of um, stuck within the shorter form. Some sometimes she writes microfiction, but you know, there are these beautiful snapshots of her characters' lives, and she writes at the sentence level so so incredibly well. Every detail has just been boiled down to the most necessary, and every comma feels like it's been placed with absolute precision and intention and so i think a lot of writers read amy hempel and think i'll never be this good but this is a great writer a prose writer to strive after you know in a way she's she's teaching us all and so she was um actually recommended to me through i was reading chuck Palahniuk books I, i'm not sure if i've got his last name correct in the pronunciation but, you know, the author of Fight Club, I was reading those mm-hmm. in high school. And, um, you know, I thought they were, like, interesting in the way that they were, like, the books that I was being assigned to read in my English classes were very much reading the classics, which at that age I didn't feel much connection to at all. But subject matter-wise, Chuck Planick never really did it for me either. But he had this website back in the day. This would have been, you know, what, 2007, where there was a fan website where fans sort of listed all of Chuck's favorite authors or authors that have been undoubtedly inspired by him. And his favorite author at the time, I don't know if it still is, she might say yes, was Amy Hempel, which is so funny to me because they couldn't be more different. But uh, yeah, he actually dedicates one of his books, uh, the book *Pigmy*, to Amy Hempel. So that's how I discovered her, and that was the moment at which I, I thought, Oh wow! And this is an author, sort of a short stories and a prose writer, who's doing the things with language that I want to prioritize, that I find exciting. It's so much attention to the words on the page. I just thought it was breathtaking. So that's the collected stories of Amy Hempel, and I would absolutely recommend it to literally anyone who enjoys writing, and especially short stories.
0: Sounds like a gap I definitely need to fill on my own bookshelves.
3: Absolutely, you do, (laughs) Rhett.
0: And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread?
3: Yes, so uh, that book I've chosen is um, The Lesser Blessed by Richard Van Camp. And it's funny, I find myself recommending this book so often. Richard Van Camp is an author from Fort Smith, uh, Northwest Territory. He's a member of the Dog Nation and uh this is it's a little novel it's only here i got it in front of me my version is only 119 pages long but I, it's probably the book that i've reread the most in my life i used to teach it as well to my students and it's just this tremendously funny and sort of cutting coming of age uh story that is absolutely perfect to consume in one setting so this would be my pick to uh to curl up with on a rainy day and reread
0: and finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners?
3: So I picked a funny book for this, and it's uh, Adam Dodeck's The Canadian Constitution, second edition. Right. So I'm actually, it's a bit of a kind of a left of a field. joke, pick, but it, it is the last book I read uh, because I'm actually going to law school in the fall. And right. i I never sat down, really, since I was probably a young kid. And even then I probably didn't pay that much attention, but never sat down and read our country's constitution. Especially, you know, we have a constitution from 1867 and a new version from uh, 1982 that became sort of our charter of rights and freedoms. You know, and I consider myself an engaged citizen and I had never sat down and and read it. uh, And I think it's, it's extremely important for people to sit down and take a look at the documents that underline the basic rights and freedoms of the individuals that that live where they live and also examine what were the values of the individuals who tried to put those values into words as well. It was a fascinating read. This version comes with annotations by the author that sort of um, explain how certain provisions have changed and how certain provisions apply in a more sort of functional sense than the way that they've been written. And uh, yeah, I thought it was fascinating. I would say, If you haven't read your country's constitutional document, go out, find a copy.
0: Well, Curtis LeBron, thank you very much for a fascinating and, and very eclectic books of your life and also for taking us deeper into the world of Sunsetter and your clear concern and appreciation of the beauties of the nature around us.
3: Thank you so much, Red. This was an excellent conversation.
0: Thank you. It's time to turn the page on another edition of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Curtis LeBlanc, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how
1: keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favorite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time.